Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Shabbat shalom, everyone. Um, we are going to discuss today Parshat, Par, Parshas Vayera. Um, and uh, I'm going to kick it over to Rabbi Shapiro to tell us a little bit about the Parsha. There are definitely some chunks in there that you know quite well, I'm guessing. Uh, some famous stories, Abraham welcoming the angels into his tent, hearing about uh, a, an heir who we know quite well. We have the story of Hagar and Yishmael being kicked out. We hear about the Akedah. We are going to be exploring uh, none of those stories this morning, continuing our trend of sort of finding some some pieces that might be less familiar for folks because uh, it's fun for us and hopefully it's fun for you too. Um, we are going to take a look at, you know, it's it's amazing how how you can read the Torah. I mean, you know, I read it, some might say religiously, and still not necessarily, couldn't resist, and still not necessarily, Rabbi Shots like that a lot, uh, and still not necessarily catch the little bits and pieces, you know, each one every single time. And, and as I was repeating through <clears throat> the story of Lot and his family and Stom and Amorah, or as it is more popularly known in our culture, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh there was Gamora, sorry, Rabbi. Uh there, there was a little detail um that I noticed that struck me as worthy of, of some exploration. Um and that I thought presents an interesting psychological window into what's going on with Lot that um I think is worthy of of some exploration. For the sake of a, a little bit of context as we're doing, so I'll I'll provide some context. Well, hello. I'll provide some context um, for the story. I'll, I'll go through the verses specifically, and then I'll turn it over to Rabbi Schatz to explore some, some kushiot, some questions on these verses. Um, for those who don't know, for those who don't remember, God has determined that the cities of Stom and Amorah are lawless, full of sin, etc., need to be destroyed. Um, at the end of the parak before this, at the end of the chapter before this, it's the pretty well-known scene of Avraham kind of bargaining with God. If there are 50 righteous in the city, will you not destroy it? 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10. It seems like there aren't even 10. Um, that in and of itself, a, a fascinating um, piece of narrative that that we could certainly take a lot of time to explore. We sort of cut from from the somewhat ambiguous but still clear resolution of that story sort of like lo- into a live look in uh into what's actually happening in stone um and there's you know in brief the how shall we say pretty unsavory story um of what is happening with lot and his family that there are these angels um who come um and Lot does greet them. Um, they he encourages them to come into his house. The townspeople, the people of Stone, 
um, insist that Lot kick them back out. Lot does not let them. He says, you cannot, you cannot do that to my guests. Um, there is the, um, we'll just say, icky moment where Lot offers up his daughters instead. The people of Stone do not, uh, do not say that's what we want. They say, we want um, those strangers that you are keeping in your home. Um, they try to physically pull Lot out of his home. They are then struck with this, with this blinding light, which also always strikes me as such an evocative image. Um, and at that point, there's this realization, okay, we really, we really got to get out of here. Lot tries to get his sons-in-law to come with him. They don't really listen. And now we're going to get into sort of uh, the meat of what we're going to be talking about today. So all of that was the narrative context. Dawn breaks. The angels tell Lot, no, man, you really got to go. Take your wife and your daughters. He's still delaying. And here, actually, I'll just sort of zoom in for the trope nuts amongst you. Um, You'll see uh, the shell shell. Um, Thank you, Rabbi Schatz. Yes, I'll I'll be here all week. week. Try, Try the deal. Tip your waitress. Um, that uh, really shows how ambivalent he is um, about really about really leaving. Um, but eventually he goes, they bring him out, they go outside the city, and they say, you got to go. Flee for your life. Don't look behind you. Don't stop. You just got to go. Okay, now this is what we're going to be looking at this week. Um, wherever you're following along, um, we're, we're coming up, we're in chapter 19, um, and we're going to be exploring verses 19 and, and 20. So Lot says, uh, oh no, right? Actually, Alna Adonai, right? Like, pray, pray my Lord, right? He's like, hold, hold on a second, everybody. Verse 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 and 20. Right. Behold, if your if your servant right has found favor in your eyes, uh, and, and your your loving kindness, uh, you've shown me so much kindness. You've done so much kindness with me. To keep me alive, to save my soul. But Ah, uh, do I really have to go that way? I can't go up to the mountains. Pen tidbakani hara'a vamati. I can't go that way. The the translation here is interesting. It's not how I would translate it, but it says lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Um, I would say it right. You see the Hebrew tidbakani, like devek, like glue. Right and ra'a can also be evil. Right, let let this let this evil let this disaster sort of stick attached to me, um, and I'll die. Hinena ha'ir hazot krova lanushama. Look, there's actually another city over there. You want me to flee to the hills? Oh, but look, there's there's that little town over there. Uh, I can I can just go over there. The uh, he meets our and it's and it's just this little tiny place. It's this nice quaint little village right outside the most sinful cities in the history of the planet. Imalta na shama, let me flee there. I don't want to go to the hills. I want to flee to that town. 
Hallo Mitzar, isn't it so tiny? It's just this night quaint, nice quaint village. He Mitzar, he utchi nafshi, and I will, and I, my life will be saved, and I'll live there. I have never really noticed these verses before. Um, I'll turn it over to to Rabbi Schatz to facilitate um, some some kushia asking, but I'll I'll like foreground a little bit of what caught my eye specifically. Um, I think it's fascinating that after his wavering and after seeing how evil the city is and after experiencing all of this, that that this is Lot's response. I just think it's a fascinating response and I'm eager to share some of uh, the sources that I found on it. And I'm eager also to explore some of the sort of internal dynamics uh, that, that might be going on with Lot as he's um, saying these words. I'll leave it there for now. Great. Um, so, Kushiot, questions that you have about these two verses. We're not going to go into the other verses. We're going to really focus on these. So, if you have questions, let's focus on this particular part of the story. Yeah, Denise. So, when it says he's living in the city, it kind of, I was like, wait a second. Last week, he was a shepherd. So, how did he get into the city and if he was a shepherd, why doesn't he want to go into the hills, which is where he's supposed to be? Hmm. Fascinating. Why doesn't he want to go back to kind of his roots, right? Why is he looking to, to reinvent himself somewhere else? That's fascinating. Other Kushiot. What's the problem with the hills? Why doesn't he want to go up to the hills? Great. Why does he why does he need a different place? He's being told where to go. Abraham didn't care where he was sent, right? What why ask the questions? Just go. Yeah, Renee. He's still just he's still so ambiguous, you know, like on the one hand, okay, you've been really nice to me. So, you know, you don't have to do any more for me, but at the same time, he's obviously he's not really wanting to die. So, he just he still seems to be really ambiguous. So, what's your question about that? Oh, what's my question about why? Why is he continuing to waver in spite of the fact that he seems to have uh, committed to to going somewhere else? Great. Yeah. Why? Why is it still so unsure for him, even if he's asking such a sure question? Right. If he's saying this is where I want to go, why? Why be wishy washy about it? Just state what you want to say. Say it. And move on with whatever. And why, is it, and why is he saying I can't do it? Why is he not considering his family or ah. the other people in the town for that matter? Yeah, yeah, great. Why is it just personal to him? Good. Yeah, Rebecca. Um, I'm not quite sure why it matters what size the other town is. So mm. why is that a factor? Right. But you no, know, if you were to say it's a good town or a, you know, a nicer town, but. I don't understand that part. Good. A lot of the rabbis have the same question. <laughs> what does small mean? Why should we care? Why is it that you would want to go to a smaller place knowing that you are someone who should probably be around a lot of people to 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 blend in rather than be, you know, a, a sore thumb in the side of, of a small group of people, a small population? Great. Other thoughts, questions? Okay. All right. Um, I just want to add on to what Rabbi Shapiro mentioned. I also had never 
noticed these verses before. I'm sure I read them, but I never noticed them before. Um, and even right now, uh, I was telling Robert Shapiro this earlier. I was like, I don't really know what to say on these verses. And so I think that it, sometimes when you look at Torah, you, you know, it's, it's no surprise that there are other things on all of our minds right now. And this does not seem to reflect where my mind is. Right. So I, I think that it's just I wanted to name that because I think that there is something about learning Torah that's also pushing you outside of the headspace that you're in that is sometimes even more um, enlightening and more exciting because the Torah is going to speak to you in a way that you don't even no, right now. Um, so I'm kind of on this journey with all of you today. And Rabbi Shapiro, because of that, is going to kick us off. Um, and then I'll share a few of the sources that I found, but um excited to hear where he takes us. I'm just going to take as my mission statement for this class to pick the verses that Rabbi Schatz has the hardest time figuring something out to say and, and, and sort of torture her I mean it is the reason that we that we decided to do this class this way is because last week I picked a verse that Rabbi Shapiro was not super excited or jazzed about right and I think that one of the things that's that's very interesting about having a class in this kind of format as opposed to just me teaching or just Rabbi Shapiro teaching is that you also are seeing the ways in which different people are approaching the same text um so I think it's I think it's totally fine Challenge accepted. Okay, great. Um, I'm trying to figure out where where I want to I want to start with this. Um, I uh, I'll riff a little bit more um, on this on sort of the the psycho spiritual dynamics that I that I see at work here because because I, I like that stuff. Um, and then I'll get a little bit into into some of the the mafarshim the commentators on this as well. I, I think many of you probably know um, about the the idea of right, like the the stages of of grief, right? Pe- people know about these, like the five stages of grief. That there's acceptance, that there's anger, right? That that there's different stages of of grief that that we can experience, and and one of them is bargaining, right? That one of the ways that we as people deal with loss, deal with grief is by sort of this rationalizing, bargaining, well, maybe if it's just like this, or, oh, it's not so bad because, or, oh, if only it's, um, and, and interestingly, though we often talk about the sort of stages of grief through the lens of those who are grieving, you can also view the stages of grief through the lens of the person who um, is in the process of, of dying. Right, that that if you're diagnosed with a terminal illness, that you yourself might go through a process of rage, acceptance, bargaining, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that I think is what I see Lot doing here. That I see him confronted with a massive loss. His his entire his entire right the place where he has come to live. Though the question of you know, how he came to live there, Denise, your comment about why isn't he happy to go back to the hills again, that's, that's where he should be anyway, um, is an interesting one to be sure. He's still losing his home. He's, he's still losing the entire context in which he's been living his life. And to have that completely upended and uprooted 
even as he literally sees it disintegrating around him, he's still not ready to let go. We, we can apply that in a number of different contexts these days. Um, and what I would say is, I think just in terms of the, the pandemic that we all continue to live through, I, I think the process of bargaining is one that we see manifested in a whole host of different ways. This sense of, oh, but is that really what I have to do? Or, oh, you're telling me to do this, but why can't I just do that? Or, oh, I know you're saying this is really what I need to do, but what if I just did this instead? I think we see that showing up in a wide variety of ways. And I think, at least to me, that's part of what I see Lote doing here too, right? You're telling me this is what I need to do in order to be safe. Flee to the hills. The entire city is going to be destroyed. Okay, but yeah, but what if I just instead, right? Like that, that's his response. And I think, um, at least for me, that's, that's a big part of what, of what caught my eye. And I, I encourage sort of each of us to reflect on our own experience of that, right? When we're confronted with challenge, change, something that we really don't want to do, but need to do, um, where do the different stages of grief um, show up for us? And, and how does bargaining um, play a role in in that process for us as as individuals and collectively. So that's that's the thing that I think initially caught my eye about this. Um, which, the question, oh, which is also mm-hmm. interesting because that's it's similar to what we talked about last week with Abraham and Lot separating, right? That there is something if we thought about it through the lens that you just presented what was Avraham trying to evade himself of or their relationship of by having that happen when it happened, maybe too soon, maybe at the right time, whatever. But that kind of distancing and and bargaining his way away from this person who he's supposed to be caring about. Right, right. Is this the time? Is this not the time? How do we know when it's time to move on from a relationship? How do we know when it's time to stay in a relationship? Yeah, um, yeah I, I think we could um, work with that construct here. Uh, I'll also add, thank you, Karen. Karen put out uh, Dabda, which sounds like a much funnier thing than it actually is. But Karen listed out for us the stages of, of, uh, of grief, um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Right. And that, again, that that grief, grief isn't necessarily a linear process. And just because you might experience one of these, you're not necessarily right. You might circle back to it. Right. You might experience anger, bargaining, then depression, then anger again. Right. You, you might hop around. It's not necessarily linear, but that that's a framework for thinking about different emotional states that we as people experience in response to all kinds of loss. Right. And I think that that there is loss happening here in this story. Um, I'll add in one more piece, not not going back to last week, but going back to two weeks ago. Um, the last time, the last time I picked verses, which so you're, you kind of can can get an insight into my own psychology and what I'm trying to work through. The reason I picked those verses about Noah, in terms of what happened with him, is the question that I was asking about those verses is the question of how do we respond after after catastrophe. Right. And and what seemed to be happening with with Noah there and how he was responding there. And now I'm kind of asking the question of, well, it's, it's not all that different of a question, really. But when we're experiencing loss, when we're experiencing grief, when we're experiencing our lives being upended, um, right, it, kind of comparing and contrasting 
Noah's response, Lot's response. Um, I, I think there's something interesting there too. Yeah, Bonnie, I see, I see your hand up. So everything you said is very interesting and I don't disagree, but suddenly I had this thought based on what Denise had said earlier about why he wasn't um, willing to go back to the hills and whether the Torah is trying to make a statement about where it is better to be living in a large city with all of its evils and problems. And because Abraham is still living in tents and welcoming guests and in a very different lifestyle. And that also relates to, I don't want to bring it up for much, but the difference between people who live in cities today, large urban areas compared to um, non-urban areas and the differences that there are. Right. And that, and that there are certainly, as we're seeing time and again, um, differences in perspective, right, these days. And we can sort of like, you know, leave, leave that there for now. But that it certainly is a different outlook, not across the board, not for every single person, but speaking in generalities, that does seem to be the case. Um, and Bonnie, I'll pay you your five bucks later, but thank you for that excellent transition into some of the Mafarshim, into what some of the commentators say about this, because it is such an interesting, right? That The question was asked, why does it matter, <laughs> right? Why does it matter what kind of a city it is, right? He's just saying he wants to go to a city. Why, why specifically mention that it's Mitzar? which is an unusual word, by the way. You, you guys are learning this about me. I love, I, I love my concordance almost as much as, much as I love my Hasidic masters. It's a, it's, a, it's a very unusual word. Within the context of the Torah, that specific descriptor only shows up here. It shows up in Nevi'im. It shows up in Ketuvim. It is something that shows up later in the Tanakh, but it's an unusual word. Um, and of course, that's something that's going to get a lot of attention from the rabbis when there's a word that that shows up that rarely. It's, of course, going to be something that the rabbis are going to play with and say, well, why is that? And what does that really mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Hamek Devar talks about how it's it's actually um, that, that, yes, it's it's little. And his comment on that is that a small town usually has fewer temptations to offer. Therefore, its sins are fewer as well. So sort of counter to what Rabbi Schatz was saying, that, that he might be seeking out a bigger place where not everybody would be saying, oh, there goes a load. You don't want to stay, right? In terms of the context for him to sort of provide him an environment where he m- might be less stomified, right? Where he's, he's less prey to, to the various temptations, et cetera, that, that he might have, have experienced in stone, um, that a small town's better. Right, that it actually might be um, a safer, um, a safer place um, for for him. Karen, to answer your question, that that word in verse twenty, where it said "vehi meets are," right, that the, the description there being like it's such a little, a little place um, that that word seems to be from my from my concordance exploration, uh, which would be a great name for a sort of experimental jazz rock band. Um, that that is is seems to be a pretty unusual uh, unusual word um it's also um rashi offers offers a a different sort of twist on that which is not that it's about the the content of, or the context within the town itself and what it might do psychologically for lot oh rafi wants to take a shower in case my two and a half year old wants to take a shower it's 11:27 in the morning but 
always a good time for, for a show. Um, that Rashi's twist on that is, he says, are not its sins but few so that you can leave it alone. Right, so that it's it's not that for Lot it's going to be a less tempting place to live, but that maybe, um, sure, Stone had to get eliminated, but this is actually um, a smaller place. So you you can't can't you let this one go? And for me, then there's also an echo going back to what Avraham was doing in the parak before, right? Just like Avraham was bargaining, Lot's bargaining here too. Right, Avraham got it all the way down to ten. Right, he got all the way down to ten, which, by the way, is one of the sources that the rabbis use for why a minion is ten. Um, right, that that if there's just ten righteous folks, is that going to be enough? And it seems like yes, it is. But it seems like no, there aren't even ten in those cities. And so Lot, through the lens of Rashi, is saying, okay, so. There might not be 10 righteous people in that town either, but sort of collectively, we're, we're talking a lot these days about numbers um, in aggregate and numbers in proportion to each other, right? Even if you don't have the 10, even if there's only two righteous people, the two righteous people in, meets, uh, in, the, in this little city um, are hold more sway than the righteous people that there might or might not be in Stone. So therefore, uh, can't that be a city um, that you could just leave alone? I want to pull up a little bit and then, I'll, and then I'll pause, which is I think it's interesting for all of us to think about what are the communities that we seek out? What are the groups of people that we seek out? Do we thrive in smaller groups, in larger groups, in different ways in both? Where do we most feel pulled to the good? Um, which, which again can echo back to Noah and that, that conversation about Ish Tzadik Tamim Hayabit Dorotav. Was he a righteous person in his generation and therefore in every generation? Or was he a righteous person in his generation, but only really in his generation comparatively to others, right? That Lot is saying, oh, let me go to this little place. There's not as much sin going on there, so it'll be better for me. I'll, I, I won't be as tempted. Or that place is just a little place. You don't have to worry about it so much. I'll, I'll be okay there because there's, there's aggregate less evil <laughs> happening in that small city um, than, than there was in Stone. Um, I'll pause there. I have another, it, it, it's a different way of framing the city itself, but, but I'll, I'll pause there. It seems like there was stuff going on in the chat, so I'm going to at least take a breath and see if folks have any. Are you going to share the Gamara piece? Yeah, that was, that was going to be the next, the next thing that I was going to share. Okay, so although, we... although you can, over to you, yeah. Rabbi Shatz. Okay. No, share it. And then, cause I'm going to say something on it. So why don't you share it? And then you can say whatever you were going to say and I'll agree or disagree. <laughs> or, both. or both. Well, I'm going to pause talking anyway and see if other people have thoughts. Renee, Renee, you can never, you can never be too clean, Renee. That was the way for your you, child. Oh, you can never be too clean. I thought you was, but the, Renee, the way you wrote that, you can never be too clean with the letter U and the letter B. It looks like it might be like you know the title of a Prince album, right? With like the, like you know you, the letter U and the letter B. That's definitely a, a lost somewhere in the in the you know purple Paisley Mansion vaults. The, the the deep cut from Prince. You can be too clean. People listening to this podcast now have no idea what's happening. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, honk twice to get me back on track. 
Okay, thank you very much. Does anyone uh, want to uh, offer responses to anything that has been shared thus far? Yeah, Nancy. Um, I keep thinking about your, you know, the reason for his bargaining and, you know, going back to the stages of grief. But I think that when we go through major catastrophes in our life, no matter what they are, um, you know, pandemic, politics, you know, personal issues, that, um, that the biggest loss is your sense of control. And, you know, I'm wondering if some of this bargaining is, well, you're telling me I have to leave, I don't really want to leave. And obviously he didn't. But okay, if I have to leave, I want some control and I want to go here and not there. And, and interestingly, right, we, we didn't go um, further on. The, the request is granted by the way, that he, he does get this sort of request approved. They, they quickly, they, they market, you know, emergency, you know, uh, action item and they, they run it through the chain of command real quick and they say, okay, yeah, you, you can go to that place. And Nancy, I think that's, that's an insightful comment, right? When we're feeling that lack of control that we try to grasp onto maybe some pieces where we feel we might have some agency, some ability to shift what's going on. Um, and interesting through that lens that this request is, is granted, right? That it's something that, that they say, sure. Uh, okay. If that's what you really want. If that's what you really need in this moment. All right. You, 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 you can have that. It makes no real difference to us. You can go to that town and, instead of out into the hills. Rabbi Shantu, unmuted. Were you going to? I've been something? unmuted since before when I asked about the Gemara thing. Um, just, just letting yourself stay unmuted. Huh? I can't do that in my house because if I stay unmuted when I'm not talking, there's a 50% likelihood that one of my children will be screaming. No one wants to hear that. Okay. Um, in terms of the, the Talmud piece that we've each referenced, um, there was a question in the chat um, Rebecca asked, um, does, does this word mean small in the other places? And Rebecca, you asked, in, interesting, right? You asked, does it come from tsar or, or narrow, right? So what, what you're referencing there is that sense of, of tsar, right? Mitzrayim, kol halam kulo, gesher, tsar me'od. Um, there, there's an ayin sort of plonked in the middle there, right? It's mem tzadik ayin resh. Although, depending on how you understand biblical Hebrew, some folks say three-letter roots, some folks say two-letter roots. So if you are an advocate for the two-letter root uh, hypothesis, then then maybe, right, that that might be a thing. Interestingly, yep, Renee, oh, Renee, you just beat me to it. Yeah, Sa'ar, right? Tzadik Ayn Reish, um, at least in modern Hebrew, the way we think about it, is is sorrow. Like um, sadness. Yeah, like Saris. Yep. Um, and so that's an interesting, n- none of the commentators that I saw went in that direction, but it was something that I noticed linguistically as well in terms of that, um, of that word. And, and if folks want, we can sort of play with, with what that, that might mean, whether it's a, a town of sorrow, of sorrow, <laughs> a town of sorrow, or a place from which you can escape from sorrow, or a a way station of sorrow. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing to be sure. Now, again, like when we think about a word that's so unusual, 
there's going to be different translations, right? There's going to be different understandings of what it might be. So some folks are saying um, small. Um, there's also, well, it seems like it means small, but the rabbis also pick up with this idea in terms of what it means that it's karov, um, right? That that this is out of Shabbat 10b. Rabbi Shat, is that the piece that you were, you were referring to as well? Yeah. Right? Oh, look at that. Look at that Talmudic mind you've, meld. You've now referenced all my sources. So I've referenced all your sources. Yeah. Talmudic mind meld, which would be <laughs> a great name for an Israeli psychedelic rock band. Okay. So what is the meaning of the word uh, close, right? What does that mean? If it's close in distance, the rabbis ask, and truly small, why did he need to say that, right? Again, from the rabbinic perspective, there is no verse, phrase, word, letter, jot, tittle in the Torah that seems to be extraneous. It's impossible. It can't be. So why would he need to specify that? Why would it be that you would need to specify it's so close and it's so small? If it's just right, it's, it's right over there. You could see it, right? Um, and so the rabbis say the meaning of the word close it's because it's, it's settling was close, meaning that, that it's a relatively new town. And so therefore its sins were few, that it doesn't have anything to do with the size of the town. It has to do with like Karov, not in terms of distance, but Karov in terms of longevity. It's not, which, is, which is not something that I would think Karov <laughs> means. But the Talmud is saying it means Karov. So who am I to argue with the Talmud? I would never dream of doing such a thing. Karov means that it's a relatively new place. And interestingly, there's a, there's a little bit of, of gematria fun, which I would put sort of third on the list but behind Hasidut and Concordance. I love me some good uh, uh, gematria. That they play with that word na, that when Lot uh, says... Hine na ha'ir hazot at the beginning of verse twenty, that it's not behold pray this city, that they say nun aleph means fifty one, so you would then read that phrase behold, this city is fifty one years old, it's close to go to it right that the na transforms into the the age of the city it's only 51 years old it's a new city it's not a place where where sort of muck has accumulated over the years it's a new place so therefore it's a good place for me to go to which is another really interesting layer to factor in when we think for ourselves about safe healthy um moral places where we might go, that there seems to be the suggestion that a newer city is a better place for him, which particularly for a religious civilization that places such primacy on the past, right? And we think about cities that matter to us going back generations, it's particularly interesting for me that this is being held up um, as a value in terms of where Lot might want to go. So Rabbi Shatz, I don't know if that's the direction that you were going to take that Talmud piece, but that's that's what sort of uh, rings out to me in, in playing with it. Yeah, I I am I was particularly struck by it because of what Rashi says on the word nafshi in the actual verse um, and connects it back to this Talmudic piece. So I guess you didn't you didn't mention all my sources. I had one more on my sleeve, um, but but I think that. 
I remember when I left to live in Northern California, um, in Foster City, California, which is a, a newer city than Los Angeles, a fairly, a fairly new city, um, man-made everything. The water was, you know, brought in. They're not real lakes, that kind of thing. It's, it's all man-made and, and pretty new. Um, and one of the things that people used to talk a lot about was because it was so new, there were ways to modify it to, to, to be what the people who live there wanted it to be, right? That if something is new, that you are not dealing with the, the historical knowledge or the historical feelings. Think about our sanctuary, right? When if someone joined Temple Beth Am right now, they would think to themselves, what a beautiful sanctuary. Someone who was married in the old sanctuary or had their child's bar bat mitzvah in the old sanctuary, walking into the new sanctuary, it might be beautiful, but it definitely doesn't hold the same emotional uh, connection that the old sanctuary had for you. So to me, this idea of going somewhere new allows you to, <laughs> isn't that just a Zoom background? That's very good, Rabbi Shapiro. Very good. Good job. Um, <laughs> I was going in such a profound direction. You ruined it. Um, that I think that there is something to be said for a lot wanting to have a new start. A lot of really bad stuff has either just happened to him or he has just made happen. And so to go somewhere that could be new for him to begin anew as a person, but also not worry. Like when you go off to college, I remember people saying to me, you get to just be you. You don't have to be the theater person who you were in high school or really good at that thing that everyone knows you're good at. Because when you arrive in college, you're just Rebecca Schatz, right? Or you're your own person. But I was just Rebecca Schatz. No one knew anything about me. I was able to discover myself and choose the pieces of myself that I shared at that point in my life. So Rashi talks about uses this midrash that, that Rabbi Shapiro just mentioned from um, the Talmud in Masechet Shabbat, Rashi actually uses it to explain the end of verse, uh, verse 20, where it says, Utechi nafshi, which means, and my soul will continue living. They translate it as, and let my life be saved. But Rashi, Rashi says that, he translates it a little bit closer to me. He says, so that my soul may live. And then he says, this is the Midrashic explanation that's found in Talmud Shabbat 10b. The real meaning of the verse is, is it not a small city with few inhabitants? You therefore need not be particular about leaving it alone so that my soul may live in it. Right, There's no, you, don't have to, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to fix things. You don't have to say, oh, how did we used to do that so that you can fit into the culture and the ritual? It's all just there for you. And when it's a newer place or a smaller place, even if it's a small, older place, right, you still have the ability to change yourself and change the ways that you do things that I think Lot was really looking for. He just, he's had such a, difficult life, whether he's brought that upon himself or it's been done to him, but it's been difficult. So to be able to say, I don't want to go to this place that's established. 
let me go somewhere else where I can now establish me, where it's newly established and I can just figure out who I'm going to be. So that's that was my take on it. It's, it's just so interesting to me because when I think about the stuff that has been helping me get through this time, it's the stuff, it, it's the longstanding relationships that I have, right? It's the, it's the relationship with family members, with friends who I've known for so long that has made it possible, right? Relationship with community um, rituals that I, that I have established in my life for a long time. Um, there has been stuff that I've layered in, right? I think I've mentioned one or two, one or two places, like I've actually been exercising consistently for the first time in my life. And that's been really helpful. But in terms of like the, the core pieces that I think have helped me move through this time, it's been those longstanding relationships. Um, You didn't go through, you didn't go through an experience like Lot was betrayed by people, but betrayed by his family, betrayed, like Lot went through an experience where being around known entities has actually hurt him. I agree with you. I, that's what's taken me through this experience right. also, but I, I don't see the two as, as like-minded adventures. Like I see them as, as different, as different, av- like, um, Oh, bye, Jay. Different paths um, that might end up at the same goal, but yeah. Yeah, it, it's also resonant to me. I'm, I'm thinking about um, Bonnie's comment about about Noah from two weeks ago, and I'm forgetting who said it. Who said it today about that he's only focusing on himself? I think Somebody. me. Oh, it was you? I was going to include a community member, but okay. It was just Rabbi Schatz. Um, But, but this sense that he's, he's just focusing on himself, right? Just like Noah um, was only focusing on sort of how he's coping post catastrophe that, that, you know, if, if I'm right, reading, reading this correct, um, that, that he's, he's talking about himself. He's focusing on his own life. He's not focusing on um, his wife or his daughters. He's really just focused on, on himself, perfect. right? Which, which sort of belies his mentality, his perspective. Um, and, you know, to, to, to fast forward a little bit in the narrative, right? Things, things don't go great from here, right? Um, we can leave it at that. Uh, but, but that there still does seem to be some real, um, problematic ways in which, you know, the, the, the family moves through the rest of this episode. Um, and, and I think we, we can see that as well in terms of just that focusing on self rather than, than collective rather than relationship. So I think that's interesting too. Um, Renee was the one who brought up not thinking about his family. And then I mentioned the, the piece about being alone. Thanks Renee. Renee, why aren't you at the beach this week? Of all the weeks, of all the weeks to be at the beach, why aren't you at the beach? She's cooking, so if she has her background on, then she can, we can't see her. But Rebecca's right. I'm cooking. It's Yom Shishi. Yom Shishi is not a beach day. Yom Shishi. No, but day. in previous Yom Shishis, you've you've still had the beach the beach backdrop. Oh, maybe because it was left from last night from when we did the holiday baking. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Yes, Jackie, this podcast is going to be wild. I don't know if it'll be wild. You guys are a great team. And back on the, you know, what makes this time easier, having you and Rebecca do these classes, right on. 
Thanks. I, I, I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, it's fun. It's, it, as you can probably tell, I think it's more fun for the two of us than for anyone else. Um, I was, I was going to add in. Wait, can um, I just say one more thing? (laughs) You certainly can rabbi. Okay. Thank you. Um, thank you rabbi. Um, I, I really, I love that they use the word nafshi. I know I kind of just glossed over that, but, um, the nafshi piece here at the end of the verse, I just think is that he's not worried about him living, right? He's worried about his soul living on. And I, I do wonder the things that we didn't talk about earlier on in his story are really soul crushing, right? They're not, these are not things that are, that are necessarily um, harmful to him as a, as a leader, but they are harmful to him as, as a human. Um, and to not be able to believe in the sanctity of your home or believe in the relationships that you have with your daughters or any of those kinds of things, I think that's, that's really hard on your soul. Um, and it especially struck me reading that, that word this week because I think that so much of so much of the exhaustion, right? None of us are actually like running marathons watching this election, but we, but, but it's exhausting because it's taking a toll on what we believe, what we hope for, what we are anxious about. And, and that's your soul. That's not your mind. That's your soul. Um, so I, I just, I'm struck by the way that I'm always struck by the way that the word soul is used uh, in our liturgy and also in our canon um, and and just being able to think about why he chose to say I not that I shall live but that my soul will live on seems to be uh, particularly profound in this in this story yeah I mean to and to take a half step back on that and to emphasize that point right the end of the verse could have just say um, Zachai right? And I yeah. will live, right? Yeah, it makes yeah. a point to say, uh, nafshi, right? It, yeah. it could just say, and and therefore I will live, but it, it goes out of its way to say, nafshi, right? That that my soul will live, right? Yeah. And nefesh, nefesh is translated, can be translated and is used in a wide variety of ways, right? Yeah. Like going back to Abraham, right? It talks about the whole han nefesh, right? All of, all of the lives that he brought with him when he was leaving Haran, you could, you could say souls. Some people interpret that as the people who he sort of brought along with it, right? Like it, it can be used in a, in a whole host yeah. of different ways. I, um, yeah. But, but yeah, it, right. On it's, its also, face, it can be translated that way to be sure. It's also just interesting that, that the, that the beginning of this Parsha starts off by it saying Anashim, Right, that right, right. those three angels—well, we call them angels—but they were just people. Like that, the word the word "person" is thrown around in in the same kind of uh, um, impactful ways. Right, like what do we mean by "person"? Do we actually mean "person"? Do we? Why didn't it say "angels"? That's the rabbi's number one question on that. But but here, yeah, you're right. It could have just left it out, right, right. and instead of using the word nefesh or using the word ish or using the word goof or, you know, whatever, whatever word would have been used. Um, yeah. We, we've been focusing much of our conversation on, on verse 20. I want to um, hop back a little bit to just two interesting language pieces that I think are interesting in verse 19. One of which I mentioned that I was kind of reading through the verses. I, I think that verb 
um, when it says penti bikini hara uh, hara I think that that root of of devek right of like sticking right that that this is gonna stick to me this evil will stick to me this catastrophe will stick to me and i'm trying to find a way out of that i just think that that's such a fascinating image to have in mind i I don't have more on it than that i just i i love i love that turn of phrase and i think it's really interesting and also the idea of devekis right which comes from from that like oh you're is that where you're going nope but oh. I got you to say it. <laughs> what's what's Dvekas, Rabbi Schatz? You know, you probably would define it better than I would. So why don't you define it and then I'll continue my statement. <laughs> Dvekut in Chassidut is sort of understood as like one of the um, spiritual goals par excellence, right? That you have refined yourself so that you are able to ultimately cleave to God, right? That it's an aspirational state that through practicing of mitzvot and cultivating an inner life, you achieve dvekut. You achieve the ability to to be ultimately um, connected with, like glued to God. There's there's full alignment there. Um, it's funny, I was going to say the word cleave also. That, yeah, there's, there's this sense, I think, that, that that means, that that means even more than just closeness. That it's really there's a sense of you being a part of whatever that Devek is connecting you to. It's not just, oh yeah, I'm close to that person. You're really connected to them in a very, really like intimate, I don't mean like sexually intimate, I just mean like an intimate, close relationship with that person or a God in that case. Right. Um, yeah, so, so and Rebecca, to, to your point about... Um, um, catching up, right? That, that, that I think is, is in the translation that we initially saw as well, right? Lest this disaster overtake me, right? I don't want that. I don't want that, that evil to like catch up to me as I'm, as I'm running away. Um, but, but that it's this, that, that with all these words, right? That they resonate with sort of like different meanings in different ways. That's part of the fun of Hebrew. Um, the other linguistic piece I was going to name um, that that was striking to me in looking a little more at these verses. Um, in in verse um, nineteen, there's that phrase "vatagdel uh, chastecha," right? Let let your let your chesed expand. Let your chesed be great with me, or your chesed has already been great with me in in saving me from the situation. I think I referenced this last week in terms of when we think about Avraham. Um, that the the quality of chesed is often connected yeah. with him, right? And particularly through the realm of the the narrative uh, component that starts this week's parsha with him welcoming in the angels to his tent, right? That's one of the clearest ways in which see, in which we see how how gracious, how loving, how kind Avraham is. Mm-hmm. So, a it's interesting to me that right we're seeing Lot and Avraham sort of as as like through a mirror darkly kind of like parallels to each other that, that like one is, is in some ways the narrative antithesis to the other. Um, and yet it's here Lot who's talking about the role of Chesed. It's particularly interesting for me, given that if you go back to that narrative at the end of the previous chapter, the criterion that Avraham cites as potentially making uh, Stom and Amarat worthy of saving is Tzadikim. 
is, is the righteous, right? That Abraham is saying to God, how, what's the, what's the minimum quorum of righteous dudes that we need to have in this city in order for the city to be safe, right? It seems like it's 10, right? What's the minimum that we need to hit? Abraham's not talking about chesed. He's talking about tzedek. And yet here, Lot is saying, thank you for your chesed in saving me. And so it, it's just interesting to me to note how those sort of qualities are, are floating around a little bit that Abraham doesn't say to God, God, have some chesed here, right? Access some compassion before you do what you're about to do. He says, let's seek out how many righteous we can find. And yet it's Lot who's saying, you're, you're being in chesed with me, right? And I'm, and I'm trying to access your chesed in giving me this one more thing that I'm asking for. So, so for me, it's just interesting to note um, how, how that quality in some ways seems to be floating around uh, a little bit in this narrative in terms of, of how it's being asked for. And then in turn granted, right? Because Lot does wind up going where he wants to go in this regard. It's possible that chesed is something that can be learned and in this case grown. Um, whereas being righteous is something that you that you have to do for yourself, right? That you can't have in, in this verse it says that that the the chesed, the loving kindness, is grown in Lot by God. Um, so I wonder if that's I, I don't I don't know because I didn't look up to see where it's used in, used in other places. But I wonder if righteousness right. is something that people make for themselves. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I think that as I sometimes offer, I think that's like seventy five percent of a thought from me. But it's it's seventy five percent that I'll leave for you folks to chew on. Um, I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to let Rabbi Schatz wrap it up uh, to see where she makes it, lets it land. But I'll, I'll just sort of reiterate this this question of um, how do we respond when we're moving through times of real uh, challenge, stress? What's the role of bargaining? What are the communities that we seek out for ourselves? What are the places that are healthy for us? What are the places that through which we seek out healing? Um, when we find ourselves going through real stress and anxiety, are we focusing only on ourselves? Or are we focusing on others as well? Are we reaching out? Are we building relationship? Um, for me, these verses kind of uh, make it possible for us to, to ask all those kinds of questions and then uh, in turn refract them back through the narrative, um, which, which particularly since I've never really explored these verses before, um, was was interesting for me for me to note. Um, I share this with the twenties and thirties in our program on a night this past week, Wednesday night, Wednesday. Um, that I think not just this week of election. I think that during this week of coronavirus that has become more normal than not um, in our lives, I think we each need to figure out what our mode of comfort is, what our place of safety is, what are the things that bring us calm, what are the things that bring us happiness, what are the things that bring us a feeling of security. And I think that's what Lot was looking for. I really do. I, I think that the fact that the word nefesh is used, I think the fact that he asks to go somewhere where he can be him um, and that new him can be whoever he chooses for it to be. I think that he's, he's lived through some pretty traumatic moments in his recent past. 
And, and even with the beginning of him being dismissed almost by Avraham, like just needing to be himself and creating who he is. And he therefore goes to this place that's going to allow for, for that great expanse. Um, sometimes you have to find yourself, if you are someone who takes up a lot of space with your creativity or with your leadership, you have to find yourself in bigger places. And sometimes you need to be in smaller places so that your leadership can actually shine brighter um, or your soul can can be nourished more than it would be if you were swallowed up by a larger place. So I don't think it's the same for every person. And I think that this is a great time for all of us to be extremely self-aware about what those things are that are bringing us that security, bringing us that availability of growth in whatever way, um, and ultimately what's keeping us calm and and happy uh, in a time that it would be easiest to just be down about about the way that we are living and the way that the world is, is turning around us. So um, I hope for all of you that this is a Shabbat of complete peace and calm and security and who knows, maybe even decision-making, um, but but that we are all able to to figure out what those things are that, that keep us being us, or at least the us that we want to be. So Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.